Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen welcomes Sharon Roja for part one of their discussion on the seven core issues in adoption and permanency. My guest on the podcast today is Sharon Kaplan Roja. Sharon is an internationally known educator, presenter, and author. She's devoted 50 years of her professional career to the institution of foster care and adoption. While working in public and private agencies, as well as private practice venues, she's focused on crisis pregnancy, infertility, infant adoptions, placement of children from the foster care system, including sibling groups and teenagers, and search and reunion. The additional issues of international adoptions, including transracial adoptions, gay and lesbian built families, and traumatized children with attachment challenges, have also been some of her specialty areas. Sharon has certainly paved the way in the world of understanding open adoption and her strong belief in preserving connections over time always comes across in her teaching and writing. She's lectured extensively both domestically and abroad. She's contributed to numerous books and professional articles and more recently released the book written along with Lisa Molina, The Open Adoption Experience, A Complete Guide for Adoption and Birth. She has also uh, released another book about the seven core issues of adoption, which is a large portion of what we're going to be talking about in the podcast today. So I'm looking forward to welcoming Sharon. Experienced and proven strategies in the field of behavioral health, straight from the experts at the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join Karen Doyle Buckwalter and Josh Carlson for Attachment Theory in Action. This training will feature practical interventions to support your attachment-based clinical practice. Coming to a city near you, visit tkcchaddock.org to learn more. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm so excited about the guest I have here with me today. Um, We are going to be talking about the seven core issues in adoption and permanency and overlaying those important concepts with attachment theory. So I am here with Sharon Kaplan Roja today and so happy to have you here, Sharon. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm honored and excited to be here. Very good. So Sharon, I know these concepts that you first started talking about uh, in the 1980s. Um, You have refined them, brought additional depth to them. uh, And I know it wasn't even just the seven core issues. You also started using language about the constellation of adoption and helping people really think about, you know, there there, there are multiple members of the triad and and different people impacted by this. So why don't you just share a little bit with us about your seminal work in this area to get us started? Well, in the 1980s, uh, a very good friend and colleague and another adoptive parent like myself, uh, Deborah Silverstein and I were talking about what a difficult journey it was for our children, all of whom were adopted at older ages, to 
see their whole family system, the constellation of adoption, which included the adopted family, their first birth family, all the people who cared about them in the community, their therapists, all the folks that were touched by, uh, by their life experience, how it would be so much easier for them if we were all united in our messages, that they didn't have to choose in terms of loyalty and connection. And that it was real important that our children not have to give up connections in order to have permanency, that we really felt adoption should be about addition and not subtraction. So we were looking for a unifying lens for all the members of the constellation and expanded it from thinking about a triad of the adoptive family, the birth family, and the adoptee, and thought about it as a system, a large system. So that started us with the unifying lens in the 1980s. Adoption, foster care, and permanency has been a journey for me since I came into the field of social work 56 years ago and I have worked with it consistently. So I came in at a time when secrecy and separate waiting rooms and all of those old practices were what I was introduced to in my 20s. And I have stayed with it all the way through to my first and second book, which is about open adoptions. I mean, really open adoptions so that children didn't have to lose family to gain family. And all the way through that journey, the seven core issues was being written about, referenced, built into curriculum. And then under a federal grant in Texas a few years ago to diminish the amount of disruptions in adoptive and foster families, the seven core issues was brought as a part of a course that was introduced into that state. And it had already been taught all over Canada at that point. And the person who was heading that project, uh, my co-author, Allison Davis Maxson, came to me and said, it's time to write a book. Because they, no matter how wonderfully educated these leaders are, they don't understand uh, what we're talking about. They need something more than an article. And she pecked at me, peck, 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 peck for about a year. <laughs> and finally I said, okay. And Deborah wasn't interested. She's fully retired. So she wrote the forward to the book, but turned the rest of the work over to us. And in the process of updating, reading research, expanding it to include third-party reproduction, we realized that attachment and trauma were the beginning for everybody on this seven core issues journey, that the book needed to be connected to attachment and trauma literature and research. So we actually created a new triangle. And the triangle is uh, the seven core issues at the base, attachment on one side and trauma on the other, and the whole constellation inside the triangle surrounded by those three concepts. Wow, that's really comprehensive and helpful. Well, we were hoping that it would be, um, and the response has been very, very strong. And I think the, the biggest question that we've had actually 
has been why would we include third-party reproduction and surrogacy uh, in the book? And the truth is all these family formations, adoption, foster care, kinship families, which make up a, a bulk of our reformed families in the country today, um, and third-party reproduction and donor insemination all start with a loss. And the loss is where the attachment or detachment, if you will, begins. Everybody starts uh, with some form of disconnect before they gain a new family constellation. Yes, and, and I think too, what is so important about what you've been talking about all the way through this is, um, like you said, that whole constellation and that it's a whole system. Um, and I know you, you, you said you've expanded beyond the triad, which I, I love you're, you're talking about that. I did wanna um, say that in recent years, just through Facebook groups and other places that are um, privileging the voice of adoptees, uh, I'm beginning to hear a feeling of, hey, you know, we feel like there's lots of space for adopt adoptive parents and there's not enough space for birth parents and not enough space for our voice. You know, we, you know, you and I bumped into each other this year at the American Adoption Congress and, you know, still dealing with sealed records and laws, not being able to know your history. So I, I wonder, um, before we go into, you know, what, what the seven core issues are, just that whole idea, because you've been preaching that, so to speak, since the very beginning. And how have you seen that evolve? I think um, the fear, trauma, anger, disconnect have all made it more difficult for us to come together. There's still a lot of energy given to who hurts the most, who lost the most. But the truth is we're all in the same boat. And if we're not conscious of each other's needs, losses, feelings and fear of rejection, issues of shame and guilt, our each, each of our own grief processes, none of us can heal. We're in it together. We have to hear each other's voices and not be frightened by them. So this unifying lens, we're hoping, will actually get everybody to work together towards changing the systems that impact us all so that the people who are supposed to be benefiting the most, the child, the young adult, the adult adoptees, actually come out of this stronger and more able to move forward out of any form of attachment or trauma that they may be carrying. But we have to carry the load together. And that is requiring a tremendous amount of, but I hurt most, or I'm the most important. And we say in the book that everybody needs to know that the adoptee is the one who had the least voice, the one who had the biggest losses and that we need to be learning from them. And that yes, we have put the birth first parents. And by the way, I combine those words because some of the folks are really first parents. They parented their children for a period of time. Yes. And then had a major separation, which creates even more attachment breaks 
because thank it wasn't, you for that distinction. Very important. It's very important. So we have those folks where the, 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 the detachment, if you will, occurred right at birth. But even then, that child in utero had three, at least three months in utero to hear voices, to be impacted by the emotions, the sounds, the, the fear, the anger, the aloneness of the woman carrying that baby. And we know that that's affected that baby even before birth. Mm -hmm. So to think that there's no attachment issues that occur, even if the baby is separated and handed into the arms of a new family right in the first day, I think has been a really sad misnomer. Mm -hmm. We have to know that all, all birth first parents, all adoptees have had major, major impact on their well-being and that has affected their attachment. If they stayed for a while with their first birth parents, there may have been poverty, there may have been violence, there may have been substance abuse, there may have been physical or sexual abuse, emotional abuse, So, and they may have moved. They may have gone with relatives and gone back to birth first family and then gone into foster care and then back to birth first family. And so they have had a whole period of time where they were attaching and detaching and attaching and detaching. And so they're carrying all that trauma as well. And then they come into uh, either their grandparents' home, aunts and uncles' home, foster parent home, adoptive parent home, and they unpack all that trauma into that family who may or may not have been prepared for understanding the really special needs of that child who is bringing those attachment issues into the family and affecting the other siblings in the household. I, I have to tell you that, that uh, when we first started adopting, our oldest daughter, who I did give birth to, um, was six years old. And we had always told her if anything ever happened to us, you know, her grandparents, her aunts and uncles, she would never be alone. And I don't even remember how that discussion came up, but when she was around five and developmentally correct at that age, she was talking about death and dying and morbidity, which kids at that age worry about. And so we told her, you know, you always will have people for you. Well, we're now telling her that there's two little children who need our family, three and a half and four year and a half year old siblings that. And as we're explaining to her, and she says things like, well, where's their mom and dad? And we explain, well, where are her grandmas and grandpas? Where are their grandmas and grandpas? Where are their aunts and uncles? Mm -hmm. And as she's asking these questions, and we're answering them, her voice is getting higher and higher. She's becoming traumatized. Mm -hmm. Now we've robbed her of the naivete that children always will be able to be with their family. So this trauma comes into a family that may or may not be uh, able to address it appropriately because they have visions of joy and giving and, and everything will be fine. And so even those families have major trauma. And even if you bring home a newborn, uh, assuming that that baby has no understanding or memory, is not at all dysregulated uh, after being someplace else and hearing other voices, you know, families don't understand that that baby can't be passed around. That baby needs to be settled and feel secure and get used to this 
new voice, this new heartbeat. So everybody starts out with the core issues of immense loss. And these aren't the children that these families carried or the, that they've given birth to, or these are different kids, not the ones they had in their fantasy life. So the first core issue, the center of all of it is loss. Before you have any gains, and this is so hard to get people to accept, before you have any gains, you have major losses. And the book lists pages of losses for every single person in this process to get them to really see it. It's the, the devil's in the detail. It's the small losses that get people. Um, and it's the secondary losses and the ambiguous losses and the vicarious losses, all those different losses that create issues of attachment and trauma. Mm -hmm. And based on that, people then have feelings or fear of rejection. Which is and the second. It's a second core issue. And it causes children, even if they were adopted at birth, to wonder when or if this could happen to them again. Why did it happen? What was wrong with them? Could it occur um, with this family? If, if they are themselves, if they're not like this family, if they choose to be different, does that mean they won't be kept? If they look different um, and people keep coming up and saying, are these your real parents? That trigger word. So that goes on for the child, whether they come home at birth or at an older stage of life, they may already have had a multitude of rejections. One of the big issues for, for adoptive families, kinship families, um, even donor insemination families is a worry that someday their kids are going to say, well, you're not my real parents anyway, I'm out of here. Um, you know, I don't need you anymore. Uh, and that has to do with attachment. I can't tell you how many times I'm on the phone with people saying, well, wait a minute. I did this yesterday with a client. You, this child is so attached to you. It's not like you can grow up one day and take that parent out of who you are. It's like going to therapy to get rid of your parents. It doesn't work. You can talk, learn to talk back to them. You can be different than them but you will never take them out of who you are if attachment has occurred. And that is such a deep misunderstanding for families that someday their children who, to whom they've built an attachment, a healthy attachment, is going to look at them and say, thank you, I'm 18, I'm out of here, you're not my real parents, I'm gone. That whole issue of attachment is just not being taught appropriately to foster adoptive and kinship families. Foster families don't realize that, that every child in their home carries a piece of them, attachment with them, wherever they go subsequently. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, I think, so I think the, the fear of that is a big, we, we'll probably get into this a little later, but a big part of the resistance to open adoption. You know, yes. we, don't, we don't want, um, and I think that can be even... Um, the parents own history coming into this if there have been abandonments or or feelings that that someone you love has left you and that remains unresolved um so yeah that's um an important piece that you have to have i guess a certain level of security to be right. open to open adoption right absolutely and you have to realize that parenting 
is about the child. It's not, it's about their needs. Mm -hmm. And so if you go into parenting to meet your own needs, then you will bypass what's a really basic need for children who had another family first. Mm -hmm. um, and understanding it, I always think about adoption as more like a marriage. And when you come together with your partner, you don't flip a coin and decide whose family you get to keep and which one you're leaving behind. You automatically assume, even if you don't like each other's families, that somehow they're going to come along for the ride. Um, you may have to set up some boundaries. You may have to be really clear about, you know, not leaving your kids alone with Uncle Joe. who has. You may wish you could just get rid of. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. And, and so you really hit on an important issue. I think really being able to help families understand um, as they move into these processes, what their own losses were, what are they carrying into these relationships, even before they're building a reformed family and um, what are their attachment styles? What is their dance of intimacy? Um, how do they dance with others? And to recognize that a child, particularly those coming in at a later stage of life, has already learned a different dance and they may be stepping on our, their toes for a while yes. um, and that they may have to change their rhythm a bit to meet the child's dance. Um, you know, these are such huge issues that are not really being addressed um, by agencies, by therapists. Um, this is what's getting families in trouble so often mm -hmm. is not recognizing how they are needing to assess themselves in relation to their children's needs and get those issues addressed before they start parenting. Yes, yes. Uh, these aren't yes. questions that come up in family assessments much at all, and certainly not in training for foster families. Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, so that's the second core issue. Yes, and, and the third core issue, guilt and shame. Wow, that's big, and you know, there's been so, we think of Brene Brown and others, yeah. written so much about this topic since you would have first started talking about this in the seven core issue. So I imagine there was a, you said you expanded on some of this in the book. I imagine this was one that, that, that there were other things to, to add to, to some of your original thinking. And I'm sure some of your original thinking, it was very, very relevant and remains. So what, what are your thoughts about this one? Well, it, it's, it's an interesting collect connection between rejection and shame and guilt because one of the ways we deal with feelings or fear of rejection is to personalize those losses, to figure out why did I lose that? Like, why am I, why am I infertile? Or why did my birth first family leave me? If we can personalize it and figure out that it was something about us, then maybe we can fix it and it won't happen again. And that causes us either to have feelings of guilt or shame. Um, and I have any, any number of young adults who've said to me, you know, I, I really treated that foster family miserably. They really wanted to adopt me, but I was so angry and, you know, and I pushed the other kids down the stairs and I created injury. And if I could go back now, you know, I realize how much guilt I carry from my behaviors. Um, so that issue of guilt, which is such an early, early, um, 
emotion and the, the uh, pardon me, shame, uh, really early emotion mm-hmm. and, and guilt, which comes at a time when we have some conscience development, which again is connected back to attachment. The attachment has to be there before the guilt really can be used as a part of family dynamics or discipline and so on. So many of our families don't realize that. They say, you know, he's been here a year and he doesn't, still doesn't do anything we ask him to do. Um, the attachment hasn't occurred and the guilt and the conscience aren't activated and the child isn't learning from their mistakes and the family is angry about that and we have to refocus them on deepening the attachment and the rest will follow but many of our kids carry tremendous shame um and they may even say things like my mother took one look at me in my crib and went what an ugly baby give it away Mm -hmm. or if i hadn't been so naughty as a one-year-old maybe Mm -hmm. my mother would have kept me Mm -hmm. um or maybe if i hadn't cried because i was hungry I could have stayed. So they carry a tremendous amount of that and and the families do as well. And so looking at how that impacts self-esteem and whether or not adoptive parents can take a stand. And when I say adoptive, I'm including foster and relative. I'm just using it as a short stick here. But, um, you know, I think all of them are struggling with issues of what rights do I have? Am I real? Do I have a right to really discipline this child? Um, I had a mother tell me on the phone yesterday, I feel so guilty because there are times I don't like this child that I adopted. He's so difficult. And I said, well, every family doesn't like their kids every once in a while. And she said, really? (laughs) And I said, yeah, check it out. (laughs) We all have days that we don't. But they don't know that their feelings are normal. To, to be angry, to want to create distance occasionally, to have their kids be really angry at them and not feel that they're being rejected. Um, they get all those feelings mushed together. And so we do an awful lot of work uh, with tools to help people look at under what circumstances they fear rejection, when have they had feelings of rejection, where is their level of self-esteem, What do they feel guilty about? Uh, What do they think their children feel guilty about? Mm -hmm. Where do they think shame lives in the family? And I will tell you that the shame in adoption and foster care is frequently linked to secrecy. And we have so much secrecy in that institution that causes people to not really be able to talk about the crucial issues. They may actually have been told Um, I led an adult adoptee group last week, and um, it was just interesting for uh, what I would say is a a late discovery um, donor adoptee. Um, So she didn't know she was offspring of donor and found out when she was 18 when her uh, father died. It's coming up more and more, isn't it? Just it was in is. the national news. Somebody yeah. bought Ancestry.com kits yeah. for everyone for Christmas, and boy, they got news they weren't expecting. You got it. You got it. And so she is infuriated with her mother. Um, she's finding a really difficult way back to her mother. And she said, it's the secret. It's the secret that's killing me. Uh, that, because it means that I was either... Uh, it was such a it was such a shameful thing in the family that we couldn't talk about it, and it means that I'm a shameful thing. 
So that has become an ongoing issue. And, you know, just the fact that, that adoptees grow up and don't have access to the original birth certificate, they don't really know what the circumstances of their conception and birth were, uh, all those secrets keep shame and guilt locked into the psyche. And, um, you know, that, that becomes a big issue. All of these first few core issues, the, the loss, the rejection, the shame and guilt, all have to be grieved. And that's hard work in a society that sees all of this as problem-solving events. Somebody mm -hmm. couldn't parent a child, somebody wanted a child, child needed a home, you move people around on the family trees and everybody lives happily ever after. And that is the view generally of society today. So, so Sharon, before we, we move on to that, that next um, core issue of grief, I wanted to ask you um, one more question about this guilt and shame one, and then we'll take a short break. But something that you point out in some of your work is guilt and shame regarding infertility or a faith crisis because you feel like you're somehow being deprived having a child for some terrible thing you did. I think this is such an important thing and I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit before we take our break. When, when you feel like you are defective, <laughs> That's a shame issue. When you feel like everybody else can do what you can't do. And that's true for the man if he's shooting blanks. I mean, if, you, if you're unable to reproduce. And in some cultures, for the man to be unable to reproduce is a very shaming thing. So we actually have cultures where the woman who is able to reproduce carries the shame of the husband so that everybody thinks it's her that's unable to have the child, saving him from that shame in the larger family system and that culture. But that whole feeling of that there is something about me. I didn't deserve this. Did, did I do something wrong? Was it that abortion I had? Was it the fact that I haven't been going to church? Is it because I masturbated? Um, you know, what is it about me you know, everybody else in my family has, has children. Why me? My, all my friends get pregnant rolling off a log. Why me? So that whole why me that's connected to that sense of being um, somehow bad, and that's the word I frequently hear. What did I do that was so bad? Why am I so defective? Why won't my body do what everybody else will do? And sometimes there's tremendous self-punishing aspects to that in the sense that they will tell a spouse, you should divorce me. You should leave me and go find somebody who can give you a child because I'm defective. And so that, that guilt about even staying in a marriage when you can't give your partner something that you thought you could easily give becomes an issue. And if these, you know, when people say, oh, I, I dealt with my infertility. You know, social worker will say, well, did you... What did you do for your infertility? Well, I went to therapy six times and we're fine. I want to know what really did you do? <laughs> Have you gotten really clear on what the losses are of not being pregnant, announcing it to your family? And have you done any rituals? Have you planted a tree? Did you, what did you do to, to address this? Um, did you take time off from work and, and wallow in your pain? Um, I really want you to tell me exactly how you grieved. 
because so many people just say, yep, I did it. Or yes. the doctor said, it's been a year, you should go adopt now. Hmm. Uh, that isn't enough. And that's where families frequently get in trouble. And then they have a child who doesn't look like them, uh, doesn't have the same interests as them, doesn't fulfill their fantasy. Um, or even if they do, it's hard for them to understand that this child is different from them and has a different history and different family trees and deserves to be able to talk about it. So the families that are most locked into fertility issues are often the ones most frightened of openness in adoption. Mm, thank you for that. Okay, everyone, we're going to take a very short break and we will then come back for part two of our podcast, uh, continuing to talk with Sharon about the seven core issues in adoption and permanency and the overlay of attachment issues with that. So thank you and we'll be back. This concludes part one of the two-part conversation between Karen Doyle Buckwalter and Sharon Roja on the seven core issues in adoption and permanency. Part two will be released on Tuesday, October 1st. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchaddock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.